Good morning. Good to be with you guys as we continue in our uh, series, The Good News Apocalypse, where we're looking at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, and the book of Revelation has been, uh, it's been a book that people have asked questions about, had assumptions about, had predictions about what this means for the future, and people have said all sorts of things, and in times where things get a little bit more heated, there's a lot of pressure going on in the world that seems like this, this book kind of comes to the surface again. Uh, and so why are we doing this book? Uh, the reason we're taking our time to go through this book uh, is because, A, there's a lot of misinformation about the book that seems to rise to the surface uh, in light of the, yeah, the events that have been going on in the world the last few years. Uh, we've heard maybe lots of comments about uh, Revelation and God's plan at the end of time and all these things, and so we want to bring clarity uh, to that. Uh, but also, I believe that the book of Revelation speaks uh, very acutely to this uh, time uh, that we are in, and I think helps us to understand uh, where God is and what he's doing in the midst of the world that we live in. Uh, it's important that we read the book in its context, and so we talked about this week one, uh, and I think week one is pretty important and foundational for understanding the series as a whole. So if you're uh, kind of jumping in here in week three, um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to week one, uh, and where we talk about uh, the context more thoroughly and the genre of the book, which uh, influences how we read the book. I mean, you don't go to uh, fiction uh, in our world to read about history, and you don't go to history to read about fiction. And, uh, and so we understand genres, but the, the book of Revelation is a genre, uh, and so we need to have those lenses on when we read it and read it in a certain type of way. Uh, the book was writ- written around uh, 96 AD by a guy named John. Uh, and he was writing, at this time, John would have been in his mid-80s. And he's 40 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey on the island of Patmos. Uh, and he's there because of his allegiance to Jesus and his faithfulness to Jesus uh, in a time where the, the Roman Empire had uh, a lot of control and influence on what people did in their private lives and their religious lives, uh, John was faithful to Jesus and the call to, to preach Jesus. Uh, and because of that, he found himself in prison on the island of Patmos. Uh, and so he received this vision uh, and, from God, uh, and he's given this vision to give to churches uh, at the time. And so the, the letter is written to seven churches in the first century, uh, and that's really important. We've talked about that. We need to understand that when we read the book, that this is for seven churches in the first century uh, primarily, uh, but it's also for us because the themes that he writes to those specific churches are true for the church uh, on the whole. Uh, and so he's writing to these seven churches uh, under the Roman Empire. Uh, at the time, Emperor Domitian is in uh, control, and he is, he is asking his, uh, the citizens of Rome uh, to worship him as God. And so they would go to these temples set up for him around the Roman Empire, and they would sprinkle incense uh, on the altar, and they would uh, proclaim that Caesar is God, that Domitian is God. And he was okay that if he had other gods, but he just wanted to be one of the gods. Uh, And so Rome was kind of encouraging this polytheistic culture uh, where people could worship many gods, uh, but you had to worship Domitian as one of those gods. Uh, This created a problem for the Christians uh, who believed in one god, uh, and they believe that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. Uh, and so different churches were reacting to this tension and this pressure in different ways. Uh, now, the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means the apocalypse. The word revelation is apocalypse. And again, we often think apocalypse is bad news. Uh, that's not actually what apocalypse means. Apocalypse means the revealing or the unveiling or pulling back the curtain on something. Uh, and so what, it, what is happening is Jesus is pulling back the curtain, he is revealing the truth and the reality of what is actually going on, that there's more going on uh, beyond what we can see, beyond what we hear, beyond what we understand. Uh, There's a greater truth and there's a greater reality at play. And so the apocalypse is the unveiling. And so it's not doomsday uh, it's not, uh, you know, we'll talk about Armageddon and all that stuff later on in the series. Uh, and so we're going to be surprised, I think, as we read it and we read it in its proper context at what this unveiling means. And so already in the first three chapters, we're realizing uh, that this unveiling is primarily not about an event, it's about a person. It's the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus, from Jesus, and it's of Jesus, and it's showing us where Jesus is, what he's doing, and what he's about when the world looks like it's in chaos, and we're wondering, where is God in all of this? And so it's the good news apocalypse. 
Uh, and like I said, John is writing this to seven churches uh, in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and these are the seven churches that he's writing to, and we looked at a few of those churches last week. And we must keep these messages to the churches in the forefront of our minds because uh, what the book of Revelation does after the first three chapters is basically uh, explain and, and reiterate what, what Jesus is already saying to the seven churches in the first three chapters. Uh, so the metaphors and the symbols and the numbers and all those things that we're going to read are basically an explanation uh, and a picture of what Jesus is already saying in these first three chapters. So uh, we need to keep this in mind as we move forward through the rest of the book. Uh, we'll notice the same format in each of these messages to the seven churches. There's an address from Christ. Uh, Jesus identifies himself usually with the title uh, that we already saw from him in chapter one. So you'll realize uh, in chapters two and chapter three that he's repeating titles uh, that describe who he is uh, already in chapter 1. Uh, there's a word of affirmation and a word of rebuke. Um, and so Jesus talks about what he has against the churches, and he, uh, and he commends the churches for certain things. Um, there's a few exceptions, and we'll look at a couple of those exceptions today. There's a warning. Uh, you know, he, he gives them a warning and to heed his words, or else there will be consequences if they don't listen. Uh, and there's a promise. If they do heed his words, they do do what he says, there's going to be a, a promise if they overcome and are victorious. And so that's the framework of each of the seven messages to those churches. Uh, on the map there, you see those are the seven churches and the order uh, that the letter would have circulated through. This was the route that mail would have been delivered uh, at the time, starting in the island of Patmos, uh, and then starting in Ephesus and ending in Laodicea. So as we go through these messages, we'll realize that their story is our story. Uh, that there's not really anything new that they were going through, or they were tempted by, that they were pressured by, uh, that we still don't go through today. And so yes, the story was written to those churches, but as we looked at last, last week, the number seven also means complete, uh, and so Jesus is also writing this letter for us as the complete church, the global church, the historic church, uh, to understand where he is and what he's about in the midst of whatever might be going on in our world. For the sake of time and simplicity, because it's hard to... Uh, I told you guys, you know, we're going to do this in 13 weeks, and for some of you it's going to feel too long, uh, but it's honestly way too short. We probably need a year, but for the sake of time and simplicity, trying to fast-forward us uh, to get through the content uh, here, uh, and there's kind of three main areas that the churches are being challenged and tempted in. The area of assimilation, which we looked at last week of those three churches. Uh, the area of compromise, churches that are uh, trying to worship Jesus and also uh, fit in and be citizens of Rome, and they're trying to kind of ride the fence and be in the middle. Uh, and then churches that are undergoing persecution because of their faithfulness to Jesus and their unwillingness to compromise. And so there's three kind of very uh, different realities, reactions that the church is is having in the context that they're in under the Roman oppression. Uh, and Jesus' messages to them uh, are fitting uh, in regards to uh, how they're reacting to that, that pressure. And so today we're going to look at just two churches, one from the compromise category and one from the persecution category, <clears throat> just, just simply because we don't have time to go through all four. So we're going to pick two from each of those categories. Uh, but I think you'll find if you take the context and understanding of each one of those churches, uh, it'll give you the tools you need to understand what Jesus is also saying to the other two that we're not, we're not talking about here. Um, okay? Here we go. Laodicea. Everybody say Laodicea. Uh, so this is the last message uh, that is given uh, to the last of the seven churches, the last on the, the mail route. Uh, and this, this letter is a letter that uh, in one hand, is uh, one of the most hardest-hitting letters, uh, but it's also one of the most inviting letters. Uh, on one hand, Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, and so there's something that is distasteful about what's happening in this church. And then on the other hand, he says, uh, I want to eat with you and you with me, and I want to be in relationship and intimacy with you. Uh, and so there's this invitation to the letter, but there's also this tension and this, uh, this frustration that we see from Jesus towards the church uh, in Laodicea. Uh, and so this is what uh, it reads. It says, write this letter to the angel of the Lord in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. 
Just a couple of comments on the original text here that was written in Greek. This word, uh, amen, actually goes even back to, word, to a Hebrew word. Uh, but the, the idea behind amen, I mean, we say amen at the end of our prayers all the time. We pray on Sunday morning, we say amen. We say all God's people say amen. Uh, do we even do we understand what amen means? Amen is basically uh, affirming that something is valid and binding and true. But something is valid and binding and true. And so when we say amen to something, we are saying yes to that. That's true. I agree with that. It's, it's valid. It's binding. I, I align myself uh, with that truth. Jesus uh, says in his earthly ministry that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we see that the way, the truth, and the life is ultimately a person. And we see that here again, that this is the message from the one who is the Amen. And so we primarily don't even say amen to an idea or to a concept. We say amen to a person. Amen to the lordship of Jesus. Amen that Jesus is in control, that he is ruling, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. We say amen. That is binding. That is valid. I align myself with that truth, with that reality, because of who Jesus is. So Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the amen. Amen? He's the faithful and the true witness. Uh, so the faithful witness, this is a, you'll, you'll see that same reference in Revelation 1, verse 5, and also Revelation 19, verse 11. Uh, the faithful uh, witness, he is the true witness. Uh, and there's two words in the Greek for truth, uh, two words for the word truth in the Greek language. Um, one means true versus false, a right idea versus a wrong idea. Uh, the word that's used here, though, is aletheinos, which means uh, something that is genuine as opposed to something that is counterfeit. Jesus is genuine. He is the genuine article. He is the real reality. What Jesus says about God is exactly true because Jesus is God. There's no greater truth about God than Jesus. In fact, if you um, go into Colossians 1, uh, chapter 1, you'll read uh, this stated in another way. Uh, but Paul says, the Son is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have be, been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all all things hold together. That's what Paul says. John here says that Jesus is the amen. He is true reality. He is the genuine article. He is life itself. He is truth itself. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And so John is pulling back the curtain. He's doing this apocalypse, and he's, he's trying to show us the majesty and the supremacy and the beauty of Jesus and of God. He's the amen, he's the faithful, he's the true witness. Um, and then uh, it goes on, he says, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And this is probably the most famous letter out of the, or the famous message out of the seven messages to the churches. Uh, you've probably heard this message before, but uh, the, the literal words being used here is, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's even more than just spit you out of my mouth. It's, it's more grotesque than that. It's like, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And I don't know if you've ever vomited. How many of you guys have vomited before? Um, little known fact, I've only vomited twice in my entire life, which I think is pretty great. Um, uh, those were two of the most horrific experiences I've ever had. Um, anyways, I don't vomit easily, but, but Jesus here is saying that I wish that you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I vomit you. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, this text has often been used, um, and people would say, well, Jesus is saying that you got to be, I'd rather you be uh, good or evil. Choose one. I don't want you to be in the middle. That's actually not what Jesus is saying. Uh, being hot or cold in this context is a, is a good thing. He's saying, uh, 
I'd rather you be hot, rather you be cold. Don't be in the middle. Um, and I'm going to explain why in a second. The concept of lukewarm water would have been uh, well known to the church in Laodicea. Laodicea had uh, these uh, natural, they didn't have a natural local source of water, and so they had these aqueducts that were built to bring water from far away to the city. And here's a picture, a modern-day picture, actually, of uh, the old aqueduct system. And so you see on the left side there that they had these stone pipes that were built to transfer water uh, to bring it to the city itself. And so by the time the water got to the city of Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was tasteless. It, was, uh, it, it, it wasn't fresh like water from other places. You see on the right side, there's a piece of stone that shows the water dis- distribution system uh, where you see the eight little pipelines and the big pipeline. And so this was the system that they used to bring all the water in and then distribute it through nine different channels to various places uh, throughout the city. Um, And so you can go and see that in Laodicea uh, even today. Uh, Laodicea was also 10 miles from Colossae and six miles from Hierapolis. Uh, Colossae was known for its cold water refreshing spring waters they had in Colossae, and they actually had hot springs of uh, what was seen as medicinal water, healing water in Hierapolis. So Laodicea would have known about the hot water in Hierapolis, would have known about the cold, refreshing water in Colossae. Uh, And again, both of these conditions are good. The cold water is refreshing. The hot water uh, is healing. What Jesus is saying is that Laodicea had neither. They were neither providing refreshment for the spiritual weary or healing for the spiritual sick. They were indifferent. They were not effective. They were not refreshing. They were not healing to those around them. They were just mirroring and resembling the surrounding culture. So this lukewarmness is actually caused by compromise. The lukewarmness that they were experiencing caused by trying to Yes, worship Jesus in my private life, but publicly I'm going to live uh, in the culture of Rome. The disciples of Jesus in the first century were under tremendous pressure, like we've known, to compromise to the imperial cult, to worship Rome, uh, to live out Romans' values and way of life, and to not do so had severe consequences. And so trying to avoid those consequences, the church in Laodicea says, you know what, we're just going to lay low and kind of fit in. And so apparently the Laodicea Disciples of Jesus, the church of Jesus, buckled under that pressure and they developed the brand of Christianity that allowed them to live in a relationship with Jesus in private, but then to live out the values and priorities of Rome in public. And Jesus said the result of this compromise was that they became lukewarm. And so he goes on to say to them, "You, you say, I am rich, I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. Uh, The Laodicea church could say, I am rich. They were rich. But because they were rich, that means that they compromised. Because you actually couldn't be wealthy and rich in that culture without succumbing to the spirit of the age. Lukewarmness is a natural consequence of compromise. And it's the natural consequence of drinking the city's metaphorical water, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. You guys heard that phrase before? Drink the Kool-Aid. The church in Laodicea drank the Kool-Aid of Laodicea. The Kool-Aid that permeates the cities of the modern world, especially successful, wealthy cities. You can see the line in the text, I have everything I want. Uh, The literal words there mean "I, um, I need I need nothing. I have no need. And so this was the motto of the Laodicean church. uh, And I think the motto of many successful cities. And so before we get into the specifics of what Jesus says to them, uh, again, a little bit of context, because Jesus is giving specific messages using specific references that are uh, unique to each of these seven churches. Laodicea was famous for its wealth. In fact, uh, the Jews of Jerusalem appealed to the Jews of Laodicea at one point for financial help because they didn't have the means. And so there's a collection taken in Laodicea, and they raised 22 and a half pounds of gold that they gifted to the Jews in Jerusalem because they had means. In fact, in AD 60, there was an earthquake that 
totaled the area of Laodicea and also the, the area of Philadelphia and Sardis. Uh, and the city was offered assistance by Rome to rebuild the city up, but Laodicea rejected Rome's assistance and said, we have everything we need, we can build it ourselves. They took no handout from road, Rome because they took pride in their wealth. Laodicea was also famous for the clothing industry. It was known for its glossy wool uh, from the sheep that were bred in the surrounding area. The garments were made there, and they were exported all over the world's world. Uh, and so they had this reputation for being not only wealthy, but being fashionable, being well-dressed by having uh, you know, the means uh, in that way. The city was also famous for its excellent medical school, and they were especially famous for their eye salve developed there that was believed to be healing uh, to failing and weak eyes. And so these are some of the things that the city was known for. And so we keep that in mind when Jesus says uh, this to them. And so they, they had this posture of, I don't need a thing. They were humanists in every sec- sense of the word. And basically, what does a humanist mean? The, the humanist motto is God is a crutch for the weak. Humanists believe that everything that uh, that needs to be done that we can do on our own strength. Everything that needs to be invented, we can come up with ourselves. We can solve all of our problems on our own with, uh, with the gifts and the resources that we have. Uh, and if you need God, then that means that you are weak. So this is kind of a humanist perspective, uh, which would have been the perspective of the people in Laodicea. We can do everything on our own. We don't need God for anything. And I think the church in Laodicea shows us that one of the hardest places to be a disciple of Jesus is in a thriving city. Let me ask you a question. Is Calgary a thriving city? Is there any echo of the church in Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, and the city of Calgary? You know, we often talk about the entrepreneurial spirit of Calgary. People that can make something of themselves. It attracts entrepreneurs and those of that uh, like-mindedness. And so there's a, there's a pride and an independence, I think, that we could see in the city of Calgary. This was the city of Laodicea. I don't need a thing. I'm going to make something myself. I'm going to do it myself. And so Jesus says to them, you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't realize. And this is the nature of lukewarmness, is you don't actually know. You don't actually know that you're lukewarm. You're just kind of meh. See, Jesus' words here are stern, not to get too nerdy here, but uh, all of these words, uh, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, in the Greek language, they all end with the, the, uh, the suffix hox, which, or hos, which is, uh, which is the sound of compassion. And so uh, Jesus' words are stern, but they're also compassionate. Jesus is saying to them in their context that you are poor. You think that you're rich and you're wealthy, remember? But you're actually poor. Matthew 5 says, uh, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He said, you think that you can see, but you're actually blind. Even though they use expensive eye salve, they were not seeing things as they really were. They were therefore missing out on life as it truly was. They weren't seeing reality. You are naked, the Laodiceans, again, they... They stood and they were known for their fashion and their clothing. And he's saying to them, you're actually naked. And so, so Jesus is taking all these things that they have pride in, in their city, and he's saying the exact opposite. You think you're rich, but you're not. You think you can see, but you can't. You think you're clothed, but you're actually naked. Your perception of reality is skewed. Again, this is an apocalypse. Jesus is trying to help them to see things the way they really are. So what does Jesus do towards this wretched and miserable church. Well, he invites them in. He moves towards them. Jesus counseled them. He said, so I advise you to buy gold for me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Also buy white garments for me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. So again, you see the, the Jesus speaking into their language, using metaphors that speak to their context. And he's telling them to buy them from him. And this is ironic, because Jesus is telling them to buy something that they cannot buy. You see that? Which is actually just undermining their self-sufficiency. He's, he's telling them to buy something they cannot buy. So they need humility. Buy for me white garments. 
buy from me gold. He's showing them that life's true riches are actually only a gift of grace. The things that are most important in life, you can't buy, you can't achieve, you can't attain. They're given to you through grace. Jesus is saying, if you'll recognize your poverty, I will give you my riches. If you'll recognize your nakedness, I will clothe you with garments. If you recognize your blindness, I will help you to see. These are not angry words. They're words of compassion. They're words of invitation that Jesus is inviting them to live a different kind of life. And then he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. And I want to focus just really quickly on this phrase, everyone I love, because most of the time when Jesus talks about love in scripture, it's the, the Greek word agape, which is this covenantal type of love. It's like, no matter what happens, God has a covenant with you and he loves you. Um, and, and it's a love that goes beyond circumstance. When we covenant at the altar, when we get married, it's a covenantal agape level kind of love. But that's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses the word phileo. And phileo is... Uh, an affection love, a love that feels, a love that is often used when it's describing friendship, a love that likes to be with a certain person. Not because you have a covenant and because you promise and because you have to, but because you choose to. Jesus says, I correct and discipline everyone I phileo. Jesus not only loves them, but he actually likes them. Imagine that. Jesus not only loves you, but he actually likes you. And agape love is powerful. And I'm so thankful that God loves us with agape love. But phileo love is also powerful. The idea that God wants to be around me. That he wants to hang out with me. So I correct and discipline everybody I love, everybody I phileo. So he says, so be diligent, which uh, the word is literally be zealous, and turn, which is the word repent, which we talked about last week, which is a changing of mind and changing of direction. So be zealous, be passionate, and change direction. And then he goes on, he says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Uh, and so, uh, First thing, Paul says, look, which is the theme of Revelation. Everybody say, look. Look. Uh, This word occurs 26 times in the book of Revelation. This is the commandment of the book of Revelation. This is the primary message from beginning to end, is to look, is to actually see with your eyes. Remember, because this is an apocalypse, and, and the whole theme of the book is that we don't see clearly. If you see what I'm trying to tell you, everything will change. Look, I'm standing at the door. How do we respond to being lukewarm, to being indifferent, to being apathetic? Well, the first thing is Jesus says to look. To look at what's true. To look at the amen. To look at the faithful witness. It starts by truly looking and seeing Jesus. And what do we see? Where do we see Jesus in this uh, picture with the church of Laodicea? He's standing at the door and he's knocking. And this text is often referred to as a text uh, that we, we use when someone who isn't a Christian who hasn't committed to Jesus, we say, God's inviting you into a relationship with him. And, and that's not that that's not true, uh, but that's not what the text is. The text is written to the church. This text is written to Christians who already gave their lives to Jesus. He's saying, look, Jesus is actually on the outside, standing at the door knocking. And this is a painting uh, by William Hunt from, uh, from 1854. And I was reading about this painting, and it took him four years to paint this. Uh, you might have seen this painting before. But a couple of things uh, that we notice in this painting is that the door is overgrown, that there's weeds and uh, things growing up and around the door because the door hasn't been opened in a long time. Uh, It's also been noticed that in in the painting that there's no door handle on the door because the door can only be opened from the inside. I think what William Hunt uh, observed in 1854 is is profound and helpful for us even today that, that Jesus is knocking, that he's waiting. And most of the time, this is the way that Jesus works. He knocks and he waits. He doesn't come in and he, he doesn't come in and kick down the door. He's not like a SWAT team guy that just comes in. 
uninvited. He's standing there waiting and knocking. This is the picture we see for the church in Laodicea. He waits and he knocks. Maybe that's encouragement for you and I that most of the times in our lives, Jesus doesn't kick down the door. He waits and he knocks. That there's a door in our lives that he wants us to open. And the the door handle is on the inside. He makes this wonderful promise, I will come in and I will eat with you and you will eat with me. And eating together was an intimate act in the first century. When you ate with somebody, it meant that you were in close relationship with, an intimate relationship with. You didn't just eat with anybody. And it's even more wonderful from that. This is actually an echo of Psalm 5 verse 2. Remember, there's over 500 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Here's one. Psalm 5, Song of Solomon 5 verse 2. The voice of my beloved, he knocks at the door, open to me, my beloved. And so there's this echo that Jesus wants to restore the intimacy of lovers. Is it any wonder that the rest of the book of Revelation leads up to the revealing of the bride and the lamb, this marriage picture between God and his lover? And so if you're in a place of apathy, indifference, lukewarmness, if you find yourself in that place, and I've been there myself, Jesus says, look, actually open your eyes. I'm knocking, I'm waiting. Is there areas that we have excluded Jesus from our lives? That is actually why the church in Laodicea is lukewarm, because Jesus was excluded. They pushed him out. And so where maybe have you pushed out Jesus in your life? Let him be the amen, the real genuine truth in every area of your life. Maybe you need to open the door to the room in your life called family. Maybe you need to open the door in the room to your life called sexuality. Maybe you need to open the door in the room to your life called money. Or the room in your life called past. Or future. Your dreams or your fears, your anger, your depression, your woundedness, your areas of unforgiveness. Sometimes we're at, we find ourselves in lukewarmness because we, we're excluding Jesus and not allowing him to actually come fully into our lives. Look, I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. If you open the door, I will come in and eat with you. We will share intimacy. So if you have a sense of indifference and apathy these days, perhaps reflect on maybe areas that you've Maybe it was unintentional and just happened, but you realize that you have excluded Jesus from certain areas in your life. So this is the hard word, but the compassionate word and the inviting word to the church in Laodicea. Now, the church to Smyrna, or the letter to Smyrna. Um, if Laodicea buckled under the pressure and compromise, Smyrna was the opposite. It was a church undergoing persecution because it remained steadfast. It refused to break under pressure. And we'll see the words to each of these churches are in some ways opposites. Um, But before we look at the specifics, I just want to make a general observation here. The irony is that the church in Laodicea wanted to survive and thrive, so they compromised. It's important we get this. They wanted to survive and they wanted to thrive, so they compromised. The church in Smyrna wanted to remain faithful, And so they suffered, and many of them were martyred. And yet there was one, there was only one of these seven churches that survived and thrived beyond the point of this letter. You know which church it was? Smyrna. And it seems to me that indifference is more fatal to a local church than persecution. Indifference is more fatal to a local church than persecution. Um, and so being a middle upper class Canadian, I, I don't, you know, I just want to acknowledge my ignorance on that statement, uh, but I can speak to indifference. Indifference, it seems throughout history and throughout scripture and history bears this out too, is that indifference is fatal to a local church more than persecution. And it doesn't seem that way at first from the outside looking in, but over time we we see that the choice to compromise and to become lukewarm is actually much more fatal uh, to a community of believers. 
And so Jesus writes this church in Smyrna that's undergoing persecution. Uh, the, the, the city of Smyrna was called the crown of Asia or the flower of Asia. It was the birthplace of uh, many great writers. Uh, one of the most famous among those writers was Homer. The, st- the city actually still exists today in modern-day Turkey uh, with the name Izmir, and it's the third largest city in Turkey, about 2.6 million people. So Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, write this letter to the angel of the church to Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. So you notice the opposite of what he says to Laodicea. I know the blasphemy of those opposing me. They say they are Jews, but they are not because uh, their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with the ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. And so Jesus, again, addresses uh, himself. He identifies himself, presents himself as the first and the last, uh, echoing the uh, the scriptures from Isaiah that are listed there, but also what he introduces himself in Revelation 1. And we talked about the significance of that statement already in week one. Uh, so I don't uh, want to belabor the point, uh, but Jesus is the beginning and the end. He uh, what is referred to in the Greek as the arche, the source of all things. Uh, what we read about there in Colossians. Uh, so he's the first and the last who was dead and is now alive. Uh, and then he goes on, he says, I know about your suffering and your poverty. Again, the opposite of Laodicea, but you are rich. So Jesus knows. He sees their suffering, even if they couldn't see him. And so he's saying, because I see your suffering, he says to them in verse 10, don't be afraid. Isn't that encouraging? Anybody? You know, yeah, you're catching on. Yeah, if I were to rewrite this text, now, sometimes I like to write my own version of the Bible and what, what, what I would like it to say. Um, and so I, I take this text from the, the New Matt translation. Um, this is what I would write. You know, I know you're suffering. I'm there. I'm aware. So don't be afraid. I am going to lift your suffering. My disciples should not have to be subject to difficult, uh, difficulty and danger. Be faithful to me and you will be insulated against the pressure of a broken, rebellious world. I mean, that would be good news, right? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm aware of your suffering. I'm aware of what's happening. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. That's not good news. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Jesus is saying it's actually going to get worse before it gets better. And this is really important for us to understand what's happening in this letter. We're going to spend some time unpacking what this is actually about because uh, there's an idea behind, uh, in our world, particularly in the Western world, in the middle and upper class Western world, followers of Jesus, that when you follow Jesus, your life just gets better. Now, there's no doubt that we receive fruits of the Spirit because the Spirit lives in us and we have joy. We have contentment. We can live with thankfulness. Uh, We can live with hope. We can live with faith. All those things are absolutely true, but those things are true regardless of circumstances. And often following Jesus does not mean that everything in your life just gets better and better and better and better. In fact, particularly to the church in Smyrna, who has been faithful, he's saying it's actually going to get worse. And why doesn't Jesus lift the pressure? Why doesn't he make everything better for them? Well, let's ask another question. What did the church in Smyrna do wrong? Had they displeased God in some way? Had they done something wrong? No, they hadn't. In fact, the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia are the only two churches that Jesus doesn't give a rebuke towards. The two churches undergoing persecution that are remaining faithful through suffering are the two churches that he doesn't rebuke. He doesn't say, I have this against you. Notice there's no word of criticism or correction. In the other messages, he says, I have this against you but not in the letter to Smyrna or Philadelphia. There's no call to repentance. There's no call to corrective action. 
There's no saying, hey, if you just do this differently, then I'm going to lift the suffering and the pressure and everything's going to be better again. That's not what he says. Why? Because the disciples in Smyrna were doing everything right. And that's kind of the point. Unlike the disciples in Ephesus, they had not left their first love. Unlike the disciples in Laodicea that we just talked about, they were not lukewarm. Last week we talked about Pergamum and Thyatira. They were not compromising like those churches and embracing the immorality among them. They were passionately faithful to Jesus. They were sold out for the kingdom of God. And as a result, they were under crushing pressure. Sometimes we're under pressure because we're making careless wrong or ungodly choices. But there's other times where we're under pressure because we are making wise, right, and faithful choices. The disciples in Smyrna experienced persecution because they were living godly and faithful lives. Now this word suffering is the word slipsis. Everybody say that. If you feel like you have a lisp, that's, uh, you're saying it right. Slipsis. I know your suffering. I know your thlipsis. And the word thlipsis is a strong word. Its essential meaning is pressure or crushing pressure. Like the picture that would come to mind uh, would be someone who had a boulder that was being rolled over top of them. And slowly as the boulder was being rolled over top of them, they were being pressured. They were being crushed under that pressure. Jesus says, I know your pressure. And he knows it for two reasons. One, because he experienced that pressure personally when he was crucified. Two, he knows the pressure because he stands among the churches, which we read about, that that's where he is. He's with them. Flipsis is a very technical word in the New Testament. It's never used, never used of normal frustrations of life or the normal troubles in life that we all experience in a broken world. It's never used in that way. It is always used in connection with the coming of the kingdom of God. That when the kingdom of God comes in this world, when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, there's pressure. I remember uh, when I was about uh, 20 years old, I was working at a camp in Prince George, and I was uh, uh, the, running the ski program there, the water ski program, uh, and I dropped the boat keys in the middle of the lake, um, and I had to go get them. Uh, and I, I didn't have time to think. I remember dropping them, seeing them sink. I was like, no. And I just like jumped in the water after them. Uh, I remember swimming after them. And I remember it was way deeper than I anticipated. And I kept going and going and going and swimming. Uh, and they got to the bo- I got to the bottom. And as I got to the bottom, my, I, I heard my eardrum pop. And the sucking sound. All this water went into my head. Uh, and I grabbed the keys, and then everything started spinning. Uh, and I had a hard time knowing what was up and what was down. And um, I, made, I, I actually made my way to the surface of the water, and I had to get people to pull me out of the water, uh, back out. And I had to get people to carry me and bring me to a vehicle, and they took me to the hospital uh, because the pressure that I was under uh, actually, I guess you're supposed to equalize when you do deep diving. I don't know this, right? I uh, never took that part of swimming lessons. Uh, I didn't equalize, but I was, I was leaving one environment and going to another. And the act of going from one environment to another caused pressure. This is what Jesus is saying, is that when the kingdom of God comes, when heaven comes to earth, there is a natural pressure that happens. And this is why Jesus doesn't lift their suffering, because this is what Jesus has in mind, is the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, that his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we live in alignment with the kingdom of heaven on earth, we are actually bringing a new environment into a present environment. Yes? And there's pressure. This is the pressure experience as the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of human beings and of those who are in rebellion against God. There's a kingdom clashing. There's light. There's darkness. There's justice, injustice. There's pride. There's humility. There's the worshiping of idols versus the worshiping of God. There's this collision of kingdoms, and the result is flipsis. This is why Jesus says, I'm not going to relieve your pressure because you're being faithful. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. But yes, 
It means that they're suffering. This is why having said, I know your slipsis, Jesus did not go on to say, and it's wrong and I'm going to take it away. It's right. It's right. To follow him into the world is to inevitably experience slipsis. And we know this, don't we? Can you feel the pressure mounting in our world right now? Anybody? Can you feel it? There's pressure. If you talk to teens in high school, they'll, they could tell you the pressure of what it means to follow Jesus now in the context of high school. That was different than 10 years ago. If you talk to college and university kids who want to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus and believe in truth, the authority of scripture, in the spiritual reality, there's pressure not to believe those convictions in their context. You talk to parents who are seeking to parent their kids to raise their children in a way to follow Jesus. There's pressure. You talk to professionals among us that are trying to run their business in a kingdom, godly way, and there's pressure. The more faith we are to Jesus, the greater the pressure, the greater the flipsis. And the cause of this pressure is both visible and invisible. Uh, Now stick with me here because what we're about to cover is going to be important as we unpack the rest of the book of Revelation. So the pressure is visible and invisible. One of the visible components in Smyrna's case was the city's fierce loyalty to Rome. The city prided itself by being loyal to Rome. Loyalty was part of Smyrna's history even before Rome became a superpower. In 195 BC, they built a temple to the goddess of Rome. It was the first city to do that. In AD 23, they built a temple to Caesar Augustus. In AD 25, they uh, built a temple to Emperor Tiberius. Uh, They had built a number of temples in the ensuing years. Uh, And so uh, the city of Smyrna prided itself on its allegiance to Rome. If you weren't all in with Rome, you were out. This was the reality in Smyrna. And so there's pressure, visible pressure in Smyrna for the, the, the people in, in Smyrna not to drink the Kool-Aid. When they chose not to drink the Kool-Aid of the city, the values of the city, the values of Rome, they found themselves under pressure. But there's also another visible pressure We've talked about that one already. But the one we haven't talked about yet uh, was there was another visible pressure of the Jewish community. And this is critical for us to understand, like I said, the rest of the book of uh, Revelation. There was fierce hostility actually from the Jewish community, some, not all, from some people in the Jewish community towards the Christian community. Why? Because the Jews received an exemption from Rome to be monotheists, to worship one God. They received, they received a sacrificial uh, exemption from Rome where they didn't have to sacrifice at the other temples. They received the military exemption from Rome. They didn't have to uh, contribute and participate in military service. Uh, they were not obligated to worship Caesar, not obligated to go to the temple and take the pinch of incense and say Caesar is God. They didn't have to do all that. Rome gave the Jews a pass. Now Jews has, had anxiety about their exemption. They didn't want to lose it. They didn't want to undergo persecution. They valued the exemption that Rome gave them to, to practice and worship the way that they wanted for the privileges that, that they were given. Uh, but they knew that they could lose it in a moment. And so there was tension among the Christians and among the, the Jewish people at the time. And some, uh, many of the Christians were actually Jews that converted, converted to Christianity that, gave, that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, And so some people thought that the Christians were a sect of the Jews. Uh, Other people uh, saw that they were something separate from the Jews. Uh, But there was this tension on whether the Christians should have the same exemption as the Jews in Rome. Obviously, the Christians would have wanted that. The Jews, in fear of losing their exemption and that privilege, uh, and, and out of showing favor to Rome were tempted, and many did, tattle on the Christians and say they're not Jews. They're not part of us. They don't deserve this exemption because they wanted to keep their exemption. And so this uh, actually is the background in this, in this letter and also the letter to Philadelphia, why you have these references. 
uh, where Jesus says, I know the blasphemy of those opposing you, referring to the uh, this group of Jews that were trying to throw the Christians under the bus, they say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. God called Jews to be his people. Why? To reveal the Messiah, to be a blessing to the nations. And what, uh, what Jesus is saying here is that they're no longer Jews. They've actually forfeited the reason that I called them. They've rejected me as their Messiah. And now they're actually working against the Messiah and what he's doing. And so they're a synagogue of the enemy. They say they are Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. So this is the other visible pressure that was happening. So there's pressure uh, with the Romans. There's pressure with the Jewish community. uh, And this pressure is the same in both Philadelphia and Smyrna. You can read that in both of those letters. But now there's also invisible pressure. There's invisible pressure that is causing this, this crushing suffering that is happening. Uh, in Revelation 2.10, it says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into pre- prison. How did the devil get in on this? Where did he come from? I thought this was about the Romans. I thought this was about the, the, the Jewish community fighting for their exemption. If we had a video camera, we would go back in time and look at, look at the, the city of Smyrna and what the Christians were going through. You would see Romans uh, that were throwing Christians into jail. You would see uh, sects of the, the Jewish community that were cheerleading that on, that were encouraging that. You would see those things happen in the visible realm, but you wouldn't see Satan. Remember, the book is an apocalypse. And so... The primary pressure that's actually happening is coming, Jesus is saying, is coming from the devil. It's coming from the unseen realm. You see the Romans, you see the Jews, but what you don't see is that there's an enemy behind these forces. Things are not as they seem. Let me pull back the curtain and help you see what's actually happening. Behind the curtain, behind the threatened political forces and the hostile religious forces was the power of evil that was out to destroy Jesus and all that Jesus had made and what he was trying to do. Uh, this is no different than what Paul says in Ephesians 6, for we're not fighting against flesh and blood, blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in, the dark, uh, in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Paul said our battle isn't a, with what we actually see. There's an invisible world that's going on that we don't see. And so pressure flips us is not hostile political and hostile religious forces. Even though that's what the church saw. Pressure is political and religious forces and spiritual forces of evil manipulating both of them. You see that? This is the key to understanding what's going to come later in Revelation. In Revelation 12 to 14, um, I'm going to wet the appetite here a little bit. Uh, you know when you go to Costco and you get a sample and you're like, oh, I want to come back for some more of that. Uh, this is the Costco sample right here. So in Revelation 12 to 14, we're going to read about the dragon, the lamb, and two beasts, which get a lot of attention in the book of Revelation. Well, what we see pictured here in Revelation 12 to 14 is the dragon is Satan who attempts to destroy the lamb But as the dragon is trying to destroy the lamb, he himself is defeated, which is what happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In his defeat, the dragon lashes out against the the disciples of the lamb because he can't defeat the lamb because the lamb is already victorious. So how does he get back at the lamb? He actually goes after the lamb's followers. But the dragon does not come directly at the church or directly at God's people. He actually uses two beasts to do his bidding The dragon comes through two beasts, one from the sea, one from the earth. And as we're going to discover when we study Revelation 13, the beasts represent, in turn, the political systems in this world, one beast. The second beast, the religious systems in this world. But both of the systems are unaware that the dragon is the one who is pulling their strings. And so, yes, There's this visible pressure that is coming from the political systems and the religious systems that are coming together. You know, anytime religion and politics get together, we'll get into this later. Um, Whenever they get into bed together, their babies are ugly. Uh, So 
We see the, the dragon actually enticing these two systems to collaborate and work together against the church, but these systems are unaware that there's an unseen reality going on that is pulling the strings. So really quickly, because I'm over time. How do we keep faith under pressure? Well, we have to remember that the pressure is actually not bad, even though it's, it's uncomfortable. Uh, pressure comes when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, and there's going to be a natural pressure because of that. So that can actually be encouraging when we feel the pressure. God's kingdom is coming, and we need to remain faithful. We need to be reminded that uh, the word test here, the devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. The word test is actually the same word as temptation. Uh, they're the same Greek word. Uh, and the, the word actually uh, means to improve, to prove something and to improve something. And so what, what Jesus is saying is that he allows testing to come. Um, and the, the enemy might see it as a form of temptation, but God can actually redeem it to be a test that proves and improves our faith. So keep that in mind. As we go forward and we feel pressure, see it as a test, something that is intended to improve us, to prove us, uh, and the invitation is to remain faithful. We need to be reminded that the pressure we're feeling is temporary. Uh, Jesus says you will suffer for 10 days, and without getting into you know, the numbers thing, remember numbers are symbolic, but 10 days uh, resembles like this. Uh, it's a temporary period of time. But this isn't the fullness of time. But this is a temporary period of time, and there's actually an end to what you're experiencing. And then lastly, Jesus ends with this promise that if you're faithful, if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. And the crown referring, that's being referred to here is a crown that a victor is given when they, they win uh, at the games, when they win a race. Right? There's going to be a finish line and that there's going to be a crown of life that's waiting for you if you persevere uh, to the end. Now, there's a way out of the pressure. That's where I'm going to end. Uh, there's a way out of the pressure. If you don't want to experience thlipsis, it's pretty easy. Don't be serious about your faith. Don't be serious about loving Jesus. Just go with the flow of culture. Just settle for the comfortable. Just ride the status quo. Do life on your own strength, and there will be no pressure. But there will also be no passion. And I would just say that that approach is short-sighted. And what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna is, Smyrna is take an eternal perspective. That yes, this is hard in the moment, but when you think from an eternal perspective, it's worth it. So choose passion. Choose faithfulness. Choose to follow Jesus. And the result will be pressure. Yes, but that won't be the end of the story. Let's stand together. Jesus, we thank you again for this apocalypse. Uh, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, that you would give us courage and perseverance to remain faithful. Lord, for those in this room who find ourselves in a place of lukewarmness, I pray, Lord, that we would just open the door, that we would hear you knocking, and that we would foster intimacy with you. Lord, for those of us who are feeling the pressure of choosing to be faithful and we can feel the pressure mounting in Canada, in our world, in our city, uh, Lord, I, prepare that you, I pray, pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would give us an eternal perspective, that you would give us an apocalypse to see things the way they really are, that we would live life, a life of faith, knowing that at the end of the day, you are Lord of Lords, that you are the RK, you are the beginning, that you are uh, the true uh, that, that you are the true reality, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that may anchor our lives in the present. We pray this in the name of the powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you are always with us, and that as we walk through challenges of whatever comes, whether it's suffering, whether it's uh, just burdens that we bear, that you are always with us, and that you promise that you will not leave us alone. And so, Lord, we welcome that. Continue to open our eyes, Lord, open our ears, that as we walk through this week, that you would be walking with us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Uh, thanks for coming. And again, just a reminder that here in the front, our prayer teams will be. And uh, if you wanted prayer for anything this morning, uh, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. Have a great week.